Father in heaven, what a joy, what a privilege it is to sing of your promises. It is to sing of your good news and to know that all the blessings that we experience in this life, all the things worthy of praise are not through our own strength, not through our own abilities, but through your son who lives within each and every one of us who extends a grace and a mercy that goes beyond comprehension, goes far beyond anything we deserve. It is the object of our praise today, Father. God, that as we sing, as we pray, as we celebrate milestones in people's lives, as we turn to your scriptures, we turn to your word, help us to see Christ above all else. Help him to be exalted in the way that we move and breathe and speak throughout this world. God, that Jesus would be exalted high. We are so grateful for such an incredible gospel. We ask that your spirit would now open our hearts and our minds and illuminate your scriptures to us and that you would join us, Father, in spirit and in truth. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You all may be seated. Good morning, church. Happy Sunday to you. Everybody doing well this morning? Good, good to see you this uh, beautiful Sunday. Special word of congratulations to all of our graduates, those seniors, for reaching such uh, a an, an, uh, really remarkable milestone, an enjoyable milestone, I think, for a lot of the parents as well. Uh, and we are excited as your church home to see where the Lord leads you into this next season of life. As I know, there are a lot of great things ahead for graduating seniors and just that new season of college and what it can bring. And so uh, we're excited for you all and continue to celebrate with you as well. Uh, welcome to UBC. My name is Jeremiah. I'm the pastor here. And uh, today we are going to conclude uh, a series that we've been working through for the last several weeks that has been focused on truth. We, we've kind of titled it, uh, What is True? and have identified that that's one of the main questions that we ask ourselves today in today's culture and in today's world. And I've really enjoyed this series. I'm kind of sad to see it come to an end, just so you kind of know where we're headed. Next week, we're going to be back to Romans. I know you've been, like, missing it. Uh, we're going to be back to Romans, and we're going to finish our discussion on the role of Israel and God's plan. And then really throughout the summer, uh, what we'll discover is that last portion of Romans, Romans 12 through 16, uh, is really filled with incredible uh, words of wisdom, practical advice on how to live courageously, which has been our theme for the whole year. Is how do I have a courageous life and anchor that sense of following Jesus in that spirit of courage? And Romans, the end of Romans will be great for that discussion. And then we'll get to the fall and we'll return to a more topical focus where we're going to talk about living courageously with a courageous identity, uh, a courageous pursuit of purity, and then living with courageous mission. And so a lot of great things on the horizon, but today we draw this series to a close on the discussion of truth. And what we've gone through thus far is to establish the importance of asking this question of what is true and the increasing complexity of how we have to ask that question in today's world. We've talked a lot about uh, John 18, that Jesus kind of gives us that answer from the very beginning when he says, the whole reason I was born, the whole reason I came into this world was to testify to that which is true. Everyone who listens to my voice is on the side of truth. And so we kind of established the answer to the question at the very beginning and have worked through it ever since then. How do you discern it? What lens 
Uh, do you see things transpire in the world? Uh, making sure that you're kind of like that inquisitive child that's constantly going, what's that? Why do we do this? Why are we having this thing over here? And, and that that's the same approach that we should take in our own lives. When we encounter different things in the world, uh, we need to turn to our Father and, and ask Him, what, what is this? How do I interpret these things? How do I know these things? And let His voice guide us. But for the last couple of weeks, we shifted our focus to not just why is it important and how do I discern it, but how do I share it? How do I share truth in this increasingly complex world, uh, in this increasingly complex culture? And we've talked a lot about the words that we need to say, the posture that we need to have, and today we're going to talk about the place. And, and as I tried to introduce that a couple of weeks ago, water, part of what I tried to communicate was that all three of those inform one another. It's kind of like putting a, a puzzle together. It's, it's not just enough to know the words. You kind of need to know the posture, and it's not enough just to know the posture and the words. You need to know the place. They all fit together. And so my hope is that this last uh, discussion today kind of helps bring some clarity and put this piece of a puzzle together. And, and we'll see that because environment very much influences how we communicate, does it not? We know this to be true, that society is filled with written and unwritten rules that influence what you say and how you say it, depending on where you are. And, and just to prove this out, uh, you know that when you go to a football game, there's a certain expectation of how you're going to communicate, correct? Like you already know that you're going to have to cheer. It's going to be loud. You're not going to just be able to, to whisper along the way. There are certain things you're going to have to say. You know all those things before you even arrive. Contrast that to like going to the movie theaters and how you're expected to communicate there, right? Are you expected to speak in a normal tone of voice or a hushed whisper or are you supposed to have an elevated tone of voice or not communicate at all? We've joked about elevators and how awkward elevators are, right? Jim Gaffigan makes a great comment about that, that you can be walking with a friend in the middle of a story, you get on an elevator and you're like, I'll tell you later, right? Because you just don't expect to communicate in an elevator. We know all the time that there are these certain expectations of how we communicate because of the environment that we're in. Now consider what happens when you violate those rules and those expectations, right? And you don't follow those norms that your environment in the place tends to dictate. Just the other day, uh, I took Wu to the library and we were in the library and I was over at another section of the library trying to finish up some work and he immediately ran over to where they have the computers and put his headsets on and started playing one of those educational games that they have on the computers. And so I'm, I'm buried in an email or two, kind of focused on that and within a few minutes, all of a sudden I hear him go, Dad, Dad, look at this! And I mean, it was, so loud, right? And I immediately knew, like, you were in violation of all rules related to libraries. And what's the rule in a library? It's shh. So I go running over to him, and I'm like, ooh, shh, you can't talk like that in a library. And, and had to correct him, kind of bring him back into compliance with it all. Here's the point. I didn't even look at what he was trying to show me, right? I didn't, I didn't even listen to what he had to say because he had violated that rule of the environment. And that's what happens. That's what happens to us, right? We may have the words, you may even have the posture, but if we engage in these certain settings and arenas and we don't have a, a, a mindset of what that environment dictates in terms of how we communicate and what we need to say, then people aren't even gonna listen. They're not even gonna pay attention. Your, your place, the environment matters, okay? 
And so that's why this is a critical part of the conversation. So I wanna take this on with a two-pronged approach today. Uh, I wanna first talk about all the common places that we find ourselves, the places that we most tend to frequent, and how do you seek, find, and share truth in the most common spaces and places, okay? We're gonna start there and essentially take everything that we've tried to cover and apply it and see how it changes from one arena to the next and kind of begin to, to have a discussion on the practical implications of what we said so far in this series in these different places and arenas. And then for the later part of the message, I wanna shift gears and not just talk about the common places that we find ourselves, but begin to ask the question, what's the best place? What's the best place to seek, find, and share truth? Uh, and that's going to be where we really start to dive into the scriptures. So the first part, we're going to just try to apply so much of what we've discussed. So let's consider some common arenas. Let's start with the home, okay? Uh, how do you seek, find, and share truth in the home? And again, I'm drawing from everything we've covered up to this point to try to, to apply this in these different places and arenas. The first thing we have to do is understand that sharing truth and finding truth and seeking truth in the home is important. What's interesting to me is that oftentimes, and I think many of you can relate to this, family and our loved ones are often the hardest ones to talk to about very deep spiritual truths. And that's interesting to me, but it is a pretty common experience. Now, we recognize that families go through different seasons, different iterations. Sometimes you've got young ones. Sometimes you're an empty nester. Sometimes you're trying to deal with adolescents and teenagers, single, married. But regardless of where you are in your life stage, when I say home, I'm talking about your loved ones, your family. And no matter what season you may find yourself in, I think we can all acknowledge there is a complexity to how do I seek and advocate for truth in these most important relationships. And I think the reasons that we're often hesitant is because we know that sometimes sharing truth is hard. It's hurtful. It, it can create um, conflict. And, and so we know that that can often put a strain on relationships. And so as a result, we, we get fearful that if I introduce that into my home, it may cost me the relationships I hold the most dear. And so we offer up and create an environment with a false sense of peace for the sake of concealing truth so that we just don't hurt the people near us. And that becomes very problematic. We have to recognize in our home the importance of seeking, finding, and sharing truth. And so what I mean by this is whatever issues you face within your family, right? Recognize that there's importance to allow Jesus's words to shape your understanding of your family and what your family is facing. So if you're dealing with stressors with parenting and you're worried about any season of life with parenting, you're worried about your grown child and the career they're pursuing, how your child is gonna handle college or adolescence and defiance and technology, or if you're just trying to get your kid to take a nap, whatever season of life you are in, let Jesus's words shape how you approach it. You think about your marital relationship. Wherever you are with your spouse, if you're in a season of conflict and discord, if you're trying to deal with financial stress, if you're trying to evaluate different opportunities, how are Jesus's words shaping those decisions? Right? You, you think about every dynamic. We should take these things as very important matters, bring them to prayer, and allow the words of Jesus to help us discern our approach. Right? Discernment is critical. And you think about all the different things that we talked about with discernment, that we are called to love. Right? That love has to be the avenue with which we engage with one another in our family. We've got to believe that transformation is possible within our home. Now, let me, let me clarify that one. 
Because a lot of times we want to change the people in our family, don't we? And, and, and so a lot of times we'll think, man, I just can't wait to change my spouse. Can't wait to make sure that they do the dishes, they do the things that I'm asking to do, to get them to quit snoring and get them to quit doing all these different things, right? And we want to change our kids, right? We want to make them little mini-knees and be exactly who we want them to be. That's not the sort of transformation I'm talking about, right? I'm talking about gospel transformation. So you can't hijack this as a way to say, well, I'm just going to make sure my spouse or my child or my parents uh, mold themselves into who I want them to be. We're talking about gospel transformation. Here's what I mean. Wherever your child is, whatever they're going through, however far they've strayed or wandered, whatever despair that they find themselves in, nothing is beyond the reach of the gospel. God can transform them. Wherever you are in your marriage, no matter how difficult, no matter how stressful, no matter how far apart you may have felt like you have grown, nothing is beyond the redemption of the gospel. Transformation is possible. Your purpose in your home is to make disciples. Your, your purpose is not just to raise little great athletes and little great students. Your purpose is to raise people who love Jesus. Your job in your marriage, it's not just to find somebody that can help you earn an income, that can help you tend to a home and help you raise little minions. Like your job is to invest in them in a way that they grow in their love for Jesus and allow them to invest in you so that you grow in your love for him as well. That's your purpose. You should be fearless in your home. Listen, you can't protect your family from everything. You can't. It's impossible. But there is nothing this world can bring to your family that is greater than the gospel. Live fearlessly. Live with that kingdom-minded perspective. Live for an eternal kingdom, not an earthly one. Use the words of the gospel within your home. Demonstrate to one another what it means to believe there is a God, that he is love, that he has given his one and only son, Jesus, and that you believe in him. Take that leap. Learn about what each other is going through. Take the time to ask those questions. Explain what you believe. Explain the gospel in all these different situations whenever you encounter them. Ask each other, how is this shaping your faith? Pray for one another. And when you approach all these things, do so with that posture that we talked about last week, with repentance. Be the person in your home that is willing to uh, take their own sins seriously and pursue righteousness seriously. Be quick to seek forgiveness and also pursue change. Approach the loved ones within your home with compassion, not anger, hostility, and resentment. Approach people in your home with that spirit of servanthood. Seek to serve one another in your own home. This is how you pursue, seek, and find truth within your home. Consider your neighborhoods. Follow the same approach. Recognize the importance that you carry to be an ambassador of truth in your neighborhood. You are there in that home that God has placed you in, not just so you could pursue the American dream, not just so that you can have the two-story house, the white picket fence, and the comfortable, safe environment. That's not why you're there. You're there for your neighbors. Go on a walk. Pray for the homes around you. Pray for the people that you see when you pass by. Pray for opportunities to have those sorts of conversations. When you engage with your neighbors, use that lens of discernment. Understand that you've been called to love. Understand that whatever you encounter with other people in your neighborhoods, that transformation is possible. That your purpose is to make disciples of the people that live around you. That you don't have to be fearful of all those different things that might happen in your neighborhood and all those other things. That you can live with this fearlessness, this boldness, and live for an everlasting kingdom. Demonstrate what you believe. Right? Demonstrate your belief 
in this gospel and let that be known in your neighborhoods, not just because of the decorum in your yard, but because of the conversations that you've had with the people around you. Take a leap. Learn what's going on with your neighbors. Get to know their names. Get to know their stories. Get to know their burdens. Understand where they're coming from. Explain what you believe. Explain the gospel. Ask them if they want to believe it. Pray for them. Throw block parties. Get engaged in holidays. Do something nice for them. Approach all these different things with that posture of repentance, compassion, servanthood. Bake them cookies. Go help their yard. Watch their, water their plants when they're gone. That's what you do in your neighborhoods. Embody these things when you're there. Think about your school, your workplaces. Follow the same pattern. Again, you are in those environments. See that it is important for you to be an ambassador in truth. You are not there just to earn a grade or to earn a paycheck. You are there for other reasons. See it as important. Begin to pray for God to guide you into that truth and to be an ambassador for truth in that particular arena and discern by listening to the words of Jesus. Right? Whatever you hear from a teacher, from a colleague, from a supervisor, from an employee, like filter it through the words, words of Jesus and do not be led astray. Do not be led astray into gossip, into ridicule, into greed, into division, into anger, or whatever you may encounter in those environments. Be able to be faithful to love. Understand that whatever you see, transformation is possible. That outcast at school that nobody pays attention to, the one that's rude to everyone, those people can be changed for the gospel. The colleague at work that's always rude, dismissive, and seems to be distant, transformation is possible. And your purpose there is to make disciples, not just to earn a living, right? And so go and be fearless, no matter what it may cost you. Yes, it may cost you friendships, it may cost you your job, it may cost you credibility, but be fearless because there's nothing that you can encounter that is greater than the gospel in these workplaces. Live with an eternal perspective, right? And make sure that you communicate what you believe. Do people in your neighborhoods, do people in your workplaces know what you believe? They should. Like, they should know. Take that leap. Take a colleague or a coworker out to lunch. Get to know their stories. Explain what you believe. Ask them where they are in their faith. Pray with them. And take all of this with that same posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood. Seek to serve the people that you work with. Do the same thing in public, even with strangers. Your interactions with strangers matter. You're at Walmart, you're at Home Depot, you're at the grocery store. How you interact with the people you pass by, with the people checking you out, it all matters. See it as important. Pray for God to guide you into that truth. Discern what you see in the world what you see on the news, all the different things that come into your experience in the public world. Use the filter of Jesus' words to discern it. Never forget that we're called to love, that transformation is possible, people can change, even strangers, right? That your purpose is to make disciples so you can actually share the gospel with a stranger. Plant that seed in those moments. Recognize that even those small interactions have a reason and a significance and a value to them. Be fearless with those things. Live with that eternal perspective in mind. Embody the essence of the gospel and continue that posture of repentance, compassion, and servanthood. It all takes place in all these arenas. 
I'll tell you one example of someone that I think has done this incredibly well. Uh, I asked permission to do this, but I want to brag on my wife for a little bit. Um, She does it great in our home. Uh, We laugh a lot of times around the dinner table because we feel like there's always a life lesson that we get a chance to learn, but she's always pointing our family back to Scripture and things along those lines. She does does a great job with our neighbors in the same uh, capacity, but at school. Uh, She's a school nurse. She's finishing her last week here, and I have marveled throughout the last several years in the ways that she comes home with these stories. And, And here's what I mean by this. She sees her role there differently, and this is the sort of shift in perspective I hope we all can take. Uh, she'll care for these young elementary school kids that'll come in with a headache or a tummy ache. And I can't tell you how many times she's been able to see them for deeper than the symptom that they come in with and really get to the heart of the issue. And how many times she's discovered that the reason that child is upset, the reason that child has a headache or a stomach ache is because of what's happening at home, right? And the burden and the stress of what's going on with mom and dad. And the way she then is able to come alongside them and comfort them, the way that she's been able to connect with a colleague who is dealing with grief, a colleague that was going through something very difficult and brings a devotional to them, prays with them, using her workplace as a refuge and an opportunity to seek, find, and share truth. It's all about how we orient our view of these things. And if we can all embrace that, we can see an incredible blessing of the way that God will go before us. Now, before I shift to what I think is the best place, The last arena that I think we need to think a little bit more critically about is the online arena. Now, we've talked throughout this series that people have increasingly become submerged in their devices, right? 85% of us now get our news and all of our information through online and social media. And so we need to think very critically about how do I apply all these things we've talked about when I engage in an online digital world? And, and I think we have to take those same steps. First of all, let's consider the importance of online engagement. I'll be honest with you, I'm conflicted about how important it is. I don't think it's nearly as important as we, we all tend to think it can be, or at least as society thinks it can be. There are times where I get so like frustrated with it that I wanna just be like, everybody should just get off and never get on it again and just throw your device away, never get on social media. That feels a little extreme. And, and a little unreasonable because it is the way in which our culture is now interacting. And, and my fear is that if we just all remove ourselves, uh, we lose the opportunity to engage in this arena that so many people find themselves in, and it just becomes that much more dysfunctional. So how do I engage it in a healthy way? Well, part of what we have to do is apply everything that we've talked about. And so if I'm going to engage in an online world Let's start, talk about discernment again. Go back and listen to that message several weeks ago about how we have to evaluate the rhythms in our life, how much we're actually consuming, evaluate the input, evaluate our hearts, all those different things. But you need to really evaluate what it is that you're consuming online and how it's shaping you and how you're allowing it to influence how you discern what is true. Right, so if you're consuming things online that are creating voices towards political division and hostility, if you're consuming pornography and lust, and and you're consuming things that are gonna promote sin and hatred and promote uh, division and all these different things to other people, then that is not helpful, constructive, and it's not leading you into truth, right? Discern what is it that you are consuming that is helping you become someone that is better at loving others. don't, Don't buy into content and lies and deceptions that are gonna convince you that transformation is impossible beyond the gospel, right? Don't let things distract you from what your purpose is. 
that your purpose is to make disciples. Don't, don't let it create fear and apprehension. We are to be fearless, live for an eternal kingdom. Where it becomes really difficult for me is not just what we consume, but how do we engage and share? What words do we use? And this is where I think we can see the limitations. Because when you start thinking about embodying the gospel truths online, and I say, okay, well, you need to learn about other people. I don't know how well you can actually learn about other people online. Let's be honest. Some of the folks that you're looking at, not only is it like a curated profile where they're only telling you what, you, what they want you to see, sometimes you're looking at things online, and it's like a robot. It's not even a real person, and you don't know. So how much can you really learn about somebody online? I don't know. Right? Explain what you believe in the God. It's really hard to do that because you lose tone, you lose posture, you lose voice. Right? And you can so easily fall into all these other things. Ask people what they believe. I don't know. That's, it's like such a public forum. That's such a personal question. That can be challenging. I mean, you can pray for people online, but even that they may see as being judgmental. Like There are parts where I'm like, maybe we should just quote Scripture online. Maybe that's the only thing that we contribute. Just Let's just put the Word of God out there as much as possible. I don't know. My point is, is that it's very limited, and yet it's very deceptive, right? That we think this is the right avenue because we use words to describe the online arena like influencer and follower, and we think, oh, that's where change can be made, right? And yet what we fail to grasp is that it is a very shallow expression of influence, and it is a very shallow experience of following. It's fragile. And it's very um, uh, hard to anticipate which direction. It's unpredictable. That's what I was looking for. Right? And so we, we convince ourselves this is where we need to gauge. And it's not very effective. Let me just be very clear. Changing your profile picture does very little in the world of transformation. Like, that's great that you made it the Ukraine flag. Or pray for whichever the latest shooting was. That's not really where transformation takes place. So we need to de-emphasize, in my personal opinion, the importance that we assign to online engagement and reorient ourselves to a better place. And that's where I wanna focus the last part of this message, right? What is the most optimal place to seek, find, and share truth? Right, your home, your neighborhood, your school, your workplace, public, like those are frequent areas. Those are common areas. What's the best one? If you were going to position yourself and say, this is the most optimal place for me to be really again, to, to seek, find, and share truth, what would you say? What I'm gonna argue for this morning is that the best place for us to be ambassadors for this sort of truth, to seek, find it, and share it, is the table the table. It's a meal. And I want to I argue for this um, on a couple of different ways. I want to start with just a sociological discussion of it, right? Because this has been proven out in a lot of different studies and a lot of different research. Then we'll get to the scriptures um, here in just a moment. But it has been uh, documented in so many different aspects of the value of what it means to gather around a meal together, Let's start with the home. Let's start with your family. Uh, the University of Florida came out with some research not too long ago uh, that I think is documented in numerous places about the positive impacts that a family that shares a meal around a dinner table more than four times a week, four times at least a week, has positive e effects on childhood development. 
That is linked to lower risk of obesity, substance abuse, eating disorders, and an increased chance of graduating high school. Conversations around the dinner table, the research notes, regardless of your socioeconomic status, will help a child's vocabulary and reading comprehension. Frequent dinners have positive impact on a child's values, motivation, personal identity, and self-esteem. Uh, family dinners also results in a decrease in high-risk behaviors. And just sitting down and sharing a meal together has drastic impact on the people that you love. And it's not just limited to families, right? This, this uh, uh, bridges out into relationships as a whole and, and, and for society as a whole. Here's one of the things that was really interesting. I didn't know this before uh, researching this this past week. Do you know uh, what the word companion, like the root of the word companion, where it comes from? It's Latin, and it literally means together with bread. That's what companion means. And so the whole concept is that friendship, companionship, is forged through sharing a meal together, sharing bread with one another. Uh, there's uh, this book called Eating Together, but was written by Alice Houllier, and she says dining together can radically shift people's perspectives. It reduces people's perceptions of inequality, and diners tend to view those of different races, genders, and socioeconomic backgrounds as more equal than they would in other social scenarios. So I love this, right? So if we're in a society like the one that we find ourselves in, where it feels like there are all these unbridgeable divides and hostility and all these different things, how do you find a place where you can find truth, find commonality, and begin to build bridges? And what she is arguing there is that when you actually gather around a table and you actually share the same food and sharing a meal together, those divides, be it socioeconomic, be it race, be it cultural, be it political, whatever, they get diminished. And that is so powerful for us to grasp because what is sad in the irony of our culture is we are running to online uh, engagement as these warriors of truth while we're eating alone. Like more and more isolation and we think this is the arena, when in reality, if you actually wanna bridge those gaps, invite someone to a meal. Sit down and break bread together. Uh, the University of Oxford did some research on this as well, and one of their professors, Robin Dunbar, uh, was, was kind of the focal piece of the research. Here's what he says. He says, we know from previous studies that social networks are important in combating mental and physical illness. Okay, so his point is, uh, social relationships, they are vital to combat mental and physical illness. We've got to have strong social relationships. And the world that we live in right now tells us the best way to curate those, build those, is through online environments, right? And yet, continue to listen to this research. He says, a significant proportion of respondents felt that having a meal together was an important way of making or reinforcing these social networks. In these increasingly fraught times, when community cohesion is ever more important, making time for and joining in communal meals is perhaps the single most important thing we can do, both for our own health and the well-being for that of the wider community. I love that. So think about uh, the people in your life, right, that, that God has placed on your heart. Let's say there's a, there's a family member, a colleague, a friend at work, a friend from school. Think about the ones that God has burdened you with invite them to a meal, right? Like, like break bread with them. Think about the people that you disagree with, right? The ones that create frustration 
because of their ideologies, their lifestyle, whatever it is, are you quicker to write them off or invite them to dinner? That's what's got to change. The table is wildly effective and incredibly important. It reduces us to this basic common humanity and this equality where we say we're, we're going to actually share bread with one another. And my argument is not just from a sociological perspective, but a biblical one as well. Okay, so here's where we go to the text. Here's what we're going to do. Grab your Bibles if you have them. Today's Bible drill, okay? So we're, we're not going to just camp out in one spot. We're going to survey a lot of different things. If you want to play Bible drill, that's great. No awards given today if you're the first one there. But I will have a few of them on the screen. It might just be easier for you to sit and listen and read them on the screen when they get there. I told the media team, good luck, just follow me, and hopefully we can get them up there at the same time. Um, so it won't be an in-depth discussion on each one, but at least some critical points. We're going to start in Genesis, okay? So it should be, uh, you can turn to Genesis 2. Let me point out, though, that when you look at creation and all, everything is, is good and, and before the fall, that one of the first things God says to humanity is be fruitful, fill the earth, multiply, and then he gives instructions for food, right? This fruit is good for food. You are free to eat. And that's one of the first foundational commands that we find in creation. Look at Genesis 2. I believe it's verse 9. Yes. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And so with this theme of, of eating, this is the gateway for the temptation. The serpent comes in and questions what God has actually done for Adam and Eve to eat, right? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the whole conversation centers around what they can and can't eat. And so all of a sudden you see uh, uh, Eve go back and forth. And isn't it interesting that the fall of humanity occurs through a meal? She took, she ate, she gave. And that's how sin enters the world. In this theme of what we eat and what we consume, what happens at the table, so to speak, is even referenced further in the curse, right? God extends a curse to the serpent, then he extends one to the woman, and then in Genesis 3:17, the second part of 3:17, God turns to the man and says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And, and notice the contrast. You are free to eat, Genesis 2, Genesis 1, to now Genesis 3, 3, through painful toil you will eat. But at the very beginning, there's this understanding of the role in which food and the meal takes and an understanding of our own place in the story of creation. And then it just continues from there. You can flip over to Exodus, right? So the Exodus account has one of the greatest demonstrations of reconciliation and redemption that we have in all of Scripture, right? God res rescuing his people from the oppression of Egypt. I mean, it, it is the chief story of the Old Testament that anticipates the gospel. And so you get this incredible out, uh, display, an outpouring of God's power and his redemptive work, and then you get to Exodus 23, and here's how he tells them to remember it. Three times a year, 23 verse 14, Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. 
For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came up out of Egypt. How do I want you to remember how I rescued you out of Egypt? Have a meal. And then the promise that comes in Exodus 2 is they wander and they're brought into new land. How is that promised land described, church? A land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Which is what we begin to see is that God's provision of food not just becomes an anticipation of certain promises, but just something that we delight in, something that we give him praise for, something that we celebrate. It becomes a place of remembrance. It becomes a place that is sacred, something that allows us to become uh, uh, able to give him all adoration and celebration for. You look at Psalms 104, verse 15. It says, he makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. He is a God of provision. And because of this provision, excuse me, because of this sacred quality that is kind of beginning to be embedded in the people of Israel, we see that it also becomes an imagery and an object of anticipation, an object of prophecy. You can go to Isaiah uh, 55, verses 1 and 2. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. It becomes an object of prophecy. Jesus comes, and we're going to get to him in a minute. He's going to be how we end. But Jesus comes and has this as another point of emphasis in his own ministry. And once the fullness of the gospel is revealed through Jesus, this becomes the marker of the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We will see here in just a moment how radical that was. For that world in that time period to share a meal together was radical. The movement of the gospel, the essence of its truth, centered around people gathering around a table. And it remains our hope even today for the church because as we await Jesus' return, how is it described in Revelation 19? Revelation 19 tells us, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. The Bible begins and ends with a meal. So what I'm trying to argue for here is that food and a meal, the table, it's not just functional. It's not just what you need to do to survive and to cure your hunger. It's spiritual. It's sacred. It's divine. It is the best place to seek, find, and share truth. Let me give you a quick example before we turn to Jesus. Um, I've I've mentioned this somewhat indirectly, I think, throughout the years, but... um, one of my favorite parts of my week is when I get a chance to meet with my neighbors. Uh, I, I had a chance to meet one of my neighbors many years ago when my son was actually selling chocolate for a school fundraiser, 
and I invited my neighbor to a church for Easter, and her response was, oh, well, I'd love to, but I'm an atheist. And I thought, well, that's an interesting response, and it, and it sparked a good conversation and ultimately a friendship. And we have befriended them. We've had her and her husband over to our house for dinner on several occasions. My son mows their yard now. Like, it is a true, uh, neighborly, genuine friendship. And uh, through the course of cultivating that friendship, uh, she and one of her good friends, uh, we decided to start meeting weekly uh, and gathering together to just talk about so many different things. And so every Thursday, we gather together, and it's, it's really kind of funny, I think, for a lot of casual observers to see us because uh, my neighbor is, is probably in her 80s, her friend is in her 70s, and I think that probably looks weird to a lot of other people. They're like, what is going on here with these three? Why are they sitting there talking? What is the point? What, what brought them together? It's unusual. Uh, we have vastly different upbringings. Uh, there's a cultural diversity there, uh, an ethnic diversity there. Uh, there's a massive difference in beliefs. Like I said, one of them, my neighbor, uh, does not believe in God. The other one, I would say, is, is definitely uh, de-churched and is not interested in, in really kind of reacclimating to that. And y'all, we have gathered together for the last several years, and we've talked about everything. We have talked about politics. We have talked about gender identity. We have talked about what happens after you die. We've talked about different religions. We've talked about cultural concerns. We've talked about parenthood. We've asked, we've, we've done book studies that ask like the hardest questions, like why is there pain and suffering in the world? We read a book about Jesus that was written by a Muslim man and who was trying to argue that he wasn't the Messiah. And we've read the Bible together. And what I've discovered is that we have totally different views on a lot of different things, right? But we also have an incredible common ground. And they have heard me beg and plead for them uh, to believe in Jesus. They know that's what I desire of them. I pray for them. I would covet your prayers for that as well. But in spite of all those different things and all different conversations, a genuine friendship has forged and been formed. And it's all happened around a table. It was the best place and remains the best place to seek, find, and share truth and help us overcome all these insurmountable divides that culture tells you you can't overcome. All of it takes place at a table. Jesus knew this too. Have you recognized how central it was to his ministry? Consider Matthew chapter 11. Look at Jesus' reputation. Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Can I get an amen? The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. How is his reputation? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't that interesting? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? And, and so he came to befriend the tax collectors and the sinners. And so how did he create spaces for him to share that truth and that love? He had dinner with them. He ate with them. He drank with them. And that was the avenue where those conversations were had. Jesus incorporated this to so much of his ministry. When he was trying to articulate his ability to be a, a savior of provision, he fed the 5,000. When he was trying to explain the aspect of forgiveness, he told a story of a prodigal son, and he explained that the father receives the prodigal son by throwing a feast. He talked about outreach. 
He said, when you throw a banquet, don't just invite those that you know, those that are privileged. No, invite the poor, the outcast. Let all people come around your table. And let's not have it lost on us. The most obvious invitation that Jesus extended of all, that when the moment came for him to fully reveal all that was about to transpire, he gathered the 12 around a table. Luke chapter 22 says, he took bread He gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Isn't it interesting that the fall of man transpired with the words take and eat? And Jesus reveals the fullness of his redemption with the words take and eat. N.T. Wright has a great quote. He says, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory, he gave them a meal. I love that. And the resurrected Christ did the very same. In John chapter 21, when it was time to reveal himself to his, his disciples and his apostles, he was standing on the shore and his invitation was, come, let's have breakfast. On the road to Emmaus, when he was walking with those two men who were downcast and depressed, he began to explain all that was written in the scriptures concerning himself. All that conversation led to a table. Luke chapter 24 says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This should be the same example for the church, that we invite people in, we gather around a table, we speak about these things, and then maybe, just maybe, people's eyes are open and they will recognize Jesus for who he is. It all happens at a table. I'll close with uh, a couple of quotes from Andy Crouch, who's written a new book uh, that's called The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. And uh, he's talking in the first, I've only read the first chapter, so I don't know if it's a good book or not, but the first chapter is really good. And he talks about the value of being recognized, that that's like a human impulse and instinct. And he mentions that one of the greatest places for that to take place is around a table. And he references the early church. He says, early in the reign of the notorious Roman emperor Nero, roughly half a dozen persons gathered around a table in the Greek city of Corinth. And two millennia later, we know much less about each of them than we would like but they themselves knew one another intimately. So intimately, in fact, that they called one another by family names, sister and brother. Even though any passerby who heard them using that language would have been mystified if not horrified. For they were not in any way related to another. In fact, in any ordinary time, they should never have met at all. And he's describing the movement of the early church, right? That it took place Around the table, he's actually referencing Gaius, who's, who's referenced a couple of times in the New Testament, Romans 16 being one of those examples. And because of the name Gaius, you can determine a certain stratus or status that he had in Roman society. And, and Andy Crouch makes the argument that Roman society back then was much like ours today. It was incredibly stratified, right? There was so many insurmountable divisions that took place right there, that as they made technological advancements in agriculture and engineering and all these things, and wealth became to become such a positive and frequent experience of the Roman culture, 
that it created an unequal distribution of it and people didn't really gather together the way that they needed to. That it was hard to maintain your status, whether you were powerful or powerless. And then all of a sudden, a new movement occurs. And it's a movement that happens around a table. This early church starts to get together in ways that didn't make sense, using these terms that didn't make sense, and it was so foreign to the culture. And Crouch's argument is we need another movement like that today, right? That we need to acknowledge all the ways that we've been led astray and allowed ourselves to be submerged in this world of money and machines and devices to loosen our grip on all these delusions that lead us astray from the truth and seek a new kind of movement where truth can be found and sought and shared and that that gathers around a table. And it won't ever really be a mass movement because mass movements by definition are in fact impersonal. But the impact and the power that can be found by all those who can gather around a table is incredibly hard to measure. Here's how he says it. Close with this. Around tables where men like Gaius would normally recline, drink and dine, waited upon by slaves and entertainers, fledging groups connected to this movement in cities around the Mediterranean. Groups of men and women, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, enjoyed a very different kind of meal. In halls that were accustomed to feasts that signaled the status and significance of the host, this community would pass a single loaf of bread from hand to hand in remembrance of someone not present. In a place of reverent, in place of reverent toast to the emperor, they would sing songs both ancient and new that spoke of a different king and a different kingdom. I love that. And so I can think of no better way for us to end our series but to encourage one another that when we go into this world to seek to be ambassadors of truth, invite people to a table. Let that be the place where these conversations are had And I can think of no better way for the community of faith that we are today to be reminded of this truth, but then by coming to a table. Coming to the Lord's table, where sin is treated graciously and righteousness is treated seriously. To come to the Lord's table, to sing songs once again, both ancient and new, and be reminded of this Jesus, of how far and wide and deep and high is his love for you and for me. I can think of no better way to end this series but to come to the table as brothers and sisters and be reminded what is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we thank you for a gospel that tells us to take and eat. A gospel that reminds us of your body being broken and your blood being poured out. A new covenant that helps us know the depths of your love and the fullness of your redemption. And so I pray that we can gather together now as a family once again around this table, around this table that is open to all and is freely offered to all those who would call upon you as Lord and Savior. God, may we gather together once again being reminded of how far and wide and deep and high is the love that we have in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for it's in your blessed name that we pray. Amen and amen.